Hi, Future Sight listeners. This is the second episode of a two-part series where we're looking at what happens when we go beyond net zero. If you haven't listened to the first part, be sure to go back and give it a listen. We'll still be here when you get back. This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Liz Lunier. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. In the last episode, we found out about the challenges to going beyond net zero, the ideas of unrealistic expectations, counterproductive measures, tricky regulation, speed, scale, and technology. But all these issues, while certainly hugely important, actually negate one of the biggest challenges to reaching net zero, the human factor. Why? Because humans are always at the heart of the consequences of climate change, whether it is rising sea levels or the loss of jobs due to the changes in their industry. It's the last of these things I wanted to find out more about, to see what companies today are doing to train their workers so that they are not left behind in the move to sustainability. I spoke to Kara Pecknold, the design director at Frog, who we heard from during the last episode, to find out more. I think in this case, the best story I can tell is to tell our own story. We are also constantly growing and emerging. And I think we've used a lot of the mindsets around how a designer thinks about solving a problem to think more laterally, to think differently. And as we do that, how can we help people to think differently or to work differently in organizations? And actually, last year, COVID was a real trigger for us to rethink how are we going to show up from a responsibility in the world, a contribution to the world, and what was the business that we needed to be in or start to focus ourselves and redirect ourselves. And what we did was we took a a six-week internal project to really align ourselves. We called it Project Donut, and the donut is based off of donut economics as a framework for looking at both social and environmental aspects of how you want to shape and reframe. In this case, it could be a city, it could be a business. And in this journey, we really upskilled our own people. We had trainings, we really looked at what were the things we needed to grow in, we looked at the skills across the organization, and we began to map everyone so we knew who had certain experiences in certain categories that we could tap into, maybe they would do some training, but we could also expose the gaps within the organization. And I think what what it enabled us to do was really look at this sort of integration of social and environmental expertise And what that resulted in was a bunch of new tools, a bunch of new ways that we could begin to have different kinds of conversations with our clients and and to help upskill them or to bring new capabilities to them. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. You guys seem to have a great humility and a great mindset regarding this. But what about some of those workers out there who are a little bit more set in their ways? What can businesses do to ensure that no workers are left behind, especially when it comes to moving away from the more polluting technologies out there? I think a lot of the ways we try to do this is to make it real for those employees. And as we did for ourselves, we put it into practice in what we would call a pilot So a lot of the ways that we try to make change is not just with a online learning or a course that you would take while you sit in in front of your computer, 
but we actually help to bring tools and strategies and methods right to the on-the-job learning. And I think that's how we don't leave people behind, is we help them to own a, a better work experience for themselves. What has been difficult in upskilling that you faced? What have you gotten wrong along the road? As I said, I think what's difficult is if you like your your job the way it is, it's really difficult to say we're going to do something different. And and change is always hard for even the most, let's say, adaptive or change-hungry types of people. When things are different, it, it always causes a bit of a challenge. All I can say is it's really about patience and having a big vision. I think if it only looks like we are tackling something for the immediate future, it can be harder for people to get behind and harder for people to be inspired. I think there is something about casting a wider net and, and a bigger vision and a future that more people want to be a part of. And so for me, that's, if, if anything, I think the call today is what does it mean to be a regenerative leader? What does it mean to cast a vision big enough for your teams to feel maybe a little bit afraid that will we get there? Will we make it? But inspired enough to keep alert and to keep sensitized and to be empowered to be able to make change and to be the people who innovate the new solutions both on the ground because they're facing it day to day. This idea of upskilling is incredibly vital for the climate change conversation. When going beyond net zero, we must ensure that workers in the fossil fuel sector are not forgotten, losing their jobs and livelihoods. We need to ensure that workers from all sectors are given agency and respect in this new sustainable working ecosystem. To find out more, I spoke to one organization who is doing fantastic work in this space, Purpose Climate Labs. I'm Daniel Hale. I work out of Purpose's London office, where I'm responsible for the Purpose Climate Lab across Europe. So I think of net zero and the journey to net zero as a very human and cultural task. And if we think mm -hmm. about that, then we can start to think about it in an interesting way in terms of rooted in the values that we have, the values of the organisation, but also the hopes and, and reflections that we have of ourselves. I'm a campaigner and we often campaign by inviting people to think about the things that really matter to them, to their kids, to their communities, their own futures. It sounds like you guys are doing some great work. Can you give me an idea of what exactly Purpose Climate Labs does? It's probably easier to talk a little bit about our theory of change. So a theory of change does what it says on the tin. How do you think you're going to make the impact that you'd like to have? And we've got two, at our heart, two complementary theories of change. Okay, so first, we know and we recognise around the world that impacted communities are really critical voices in the climate debate and very often they're silenced, they go unheard, no one really asks them what they want. And so we make a really special effort to find those people and uplift those, their voices because they're the people in society who can really speak with authority, authenticity about climate change. So that could be those oil or coal workers faced with losing their livelihoods. But also it could be indigenous communities who are at the front line of resistance to deforestation in the Brazilian rainforest or the Indonesian rainforest. And we really need to support them and, and make their voices heard. Or it might be young people of colour living in neighbourhoods marked by toxic air here in the UK, in London where I live. So yeah, that's the first theory of change, impacted communities. And then that secondly, we see the climate movement and climate campaigning has done really well around the world. We're talking about net zero, but I think what we're seeing is that we're beginning to see the limits of what the climate movement can do because it focuses on a pretty narrow segment of societies that often 
educated, affluent, pretty aligned with the values that the sector holds, like internationalism or the importance of science. We see that, you know. Um, so I think to make progress and to really like embed uh, the, the gains that we've made, we really have to engage on a whole society level, which means talking to people that don't really necessarily hold the, that set of values or really know very much about climate change in the first place. I think we, we really need to expand the audience for climate action. And so that means building new audiences, which are pretty unlike our existing ones. Can you give me a little bit more detail about how you're going to be building power among some of these affected and marginalized communities? What does that entail and why do you think your strategy is so effective? So we do it in lots of different ways in different parts of the world, but maybe I could talk to you a bit about the work that we've been doing with rainforest communities, indigenous communities in rainforest. We find around the world that indigenous communities are being criminalized and expelled from their lands. They're not consulted on about projects that impact rainforests and lands that they've historically called home and, and protected. And that's because there's a lot of money in rainforests. There's oil under rainforests. There's timber in rainforests. There's various ores under the rainforests as well. There's, you know, there, there are lots of incentives. The rainforest isn't really worth anything standing up, but if you chop it down, and you mine under it, all of a sudden it's worth a lot of money. And so it's very easy for indigenous communities to be attacked and undermined and ignored. Um, and so in partnership with a big philanthropy, the Ford Foundation, we create the Guardians of the Forest, a campaign which really was mobilising and creating a verbal and visual brand and key narratives that highlight the role of indigenous communities as really critical people in the preservation of the rainforest and also helped to uh, equip indigenous communities with the tools that they needed to tell their own stories. It's not down to us to um, to tell their stories, it, it's theirs. And it, it, our job is really just to elevate their voice to people in power. I know that Purpose Climate Labs has an idea of what is a, a just transition when it comes to non-polluting energy sources. Can you explain a little bit about what that just transition is? So it's, it's probably easier to explain what an unjust transition is. And so I'm here in the UK um, and in the 1980s, we closed all of the coal mines or many of them. Uh, and we didn't put anything in place for any of those workers and all their families or their communities. And those parts of the country have you know, uh, blighted for many years. That's the, an unjust transition. So what is, what's the flip side? What's the just part of this? I think it means moving to carbon neutral energy sources in a way that happens really fairly for everyone, for those affected communities, for those employed in the fossil fuel sector, um, but also the, for society as a whole. I think we need to um, make sure that we have a special support for those who might lose out because of the transition. They could be whole countries, they could, could be regions of countries, industries, communities, workers and consumers. Everyone needs to, we need to think about things in the round and recognise where people are going to be adversely affected, particularly those people who can least who are least able to bear those costs and we need to particularly put them at the centre of our policy making and thoughtfulness. So transition to a green recovery, a green economy really means that we need structural changes, we need new strategies, we need detailed plans and it requires us putting affected communities right at the heart of what we're doing um, so that they can drive some of this process as well. A good example is some of the work that we've been doing in Silesia, which is the coal region, one of the coal regions of Poland. We've been doing loads of work there to try to even begin to have the conversation about the transition and a just transition. Um, it's pretty politically fraught to work on climate in Poland. The work that PCL is doing in Poland is truly incredible. 
It puts people at its heart. I wanted to dig further into some of the work they are doing to understand what can be done. I'm Natalia Wengzhen. I'm a campaign manager at Purpose Climate Lab. I'm based in Poland where I run our campaigns focusing on climate and environmental issues. So I got in touch with Daniel's colleague, a campaign manager at Purpose. She has been leading PCL's work in the region as they carry out campaigns to help forgotten workers across the country. Who is being left behind? What sectors of workers are going to be left behind as we move to net zero? I like to think about this just transition process as a process that really is is, uh, full of inclusion and equality, but there is a risk, of course, that some of the groups might be left behind. And that's some obvious comments I could make here is definitely the whole sector of electricity, gas, air conditioning supplies, the whole mining sector in Poland, for example. So when I say the mining sector, all the people that that are part of this of the system, so miners and and companies that are included in the supply chain, etc. But that's also transport and storage because we need to change the the transport to be non-polluting as well. That's manufacturing. That's, that's a whole big discussion about agriculture and farmers and how to make sure that farming and agriculture is sustainable and non-polluting as well. So I think these are the uh, some of the sectors that that might be left behind. And there is a really real need of thinking about those communities and businesses and really making sure they are on board and. They're, they're considered as an important element of the whole conversation and the whole sectoral change we're thinking about. Can you give me a specific example of how you've built power among some of these affected and marginalized communities? What did it entail and why do you think it was so effective? I think one good example of uh, building power among affected communities is the work we... I'm based in Poland. Let me bring an example from Poland. We Last year, we started to work with, with some rural communities because we identified that these are the communities that are uh, impacted by floods, by droughts. They all raise concerns about the water resources and how this is shortening every year. And and we thought creatively how to take those communities on board, how to empower them to, to voice those concerns and really become part of the conversation. And we identified some leaders from, from rural communities. We upskilled them and gave them some tools and a knowledge about how to talk about the issues, how to make their voices relevant, and then supported them in building local and locally relevant campaigns that really can start a dialogue with local governments, with municipalities, but also how to voice those concerns and build an action that could reach out to to central government. And as part of the one of the last activities, we developed a an exhibition with Pismo magazine in Poland that was showing 10 women from rural areas of Poland that are active locally and 
they they tell a story of their personal experience how the climate change is is affecting them like day by day can you tell me a little bit more about that exhibition what were some of the personal experiences that these women were discussing the the exhibition and reportage that was part of the project was very emotional i found it very emotional and very personal because the women share their private stories how the situation really affects their private lives their businesses and i remember that one woman said that she's really afraid of the future for her kids and they that they won't live in the the same area that she lives but also like how the future would will look like for them will there will be resources like water if there will be like challenges because i don't know maybe the surrounding might be affected by floods etc so i think it's very powerful because it's personal it's it's strong but also the the, the whole story was quite sad to me because you know how severe is already the impact of climate change but there was a positive side of the story of course like the there is a time to act and there is a need to act and also the willingness to do more and engage communities which i think is very important in the stories but this is not the only work that PCL is doing in Poland their work with miners in Silesia an area of Poland of vital importance to mining, with a rich and proud culture, provides another perspective. In Poland, we we developed a, a work with with miners in the region of Silesia. So Poland is the EU's largest coal-dominated economy, and around eighty-six thousand people uh, in the country work directly in the mining sector. Most of them are from Silesia, but also uh, there are many others that cooperate somehow with the mining business and will be affected as well. We uh, decided to focus on Silesia itself because it's the biggest coal mining region. Coal mining it's being part of the history of the region. There were times of the prosperity for the region where the coal mining was the heart of it, but also the region built identity that was rooted in coal. It's very moving away from coal. It's not only an economic decision, it's like a changing of a lifestyle of the region. With the campaign, we wanted to build and test a narrative around the future of the region to show that Silesia is so much more than just coal. And we wanted to really empower people to start talking about alternative scenarios that could be built for the region. And we wanted to start a discussion, what are the perspectives for miners, for their families, and who will be really affected by these changes. So we we were inspired by the, by the fact that there were some radio stories that were quite popular years ago. And we thought that we will take miners and mining communities on this entertaining journey with us. And we gathered a lot of insights about the group. Some of the team is really based in Silesia and some of our families used to be miners. So we had insights from the first hand. And we worked really closely with a great local NGO, created 
and, and offered us context, and that was Pomiasto Association. And with gathering all the stories, we created a family saga that was that was captured in two formats. One of them was podcast that was uh, based on this radio saga inspiration, and the other was like a soap opera style four episodes video telling a story of just one family but at different stages. So there was a older grandpa who used to be a minor, his son who's in the moment of making decisions about his future careers and the younger generation of, of teenagers who see their future totally different that, than the older generations within the region. And what was the reaction to that uh, was that we sparked a discussion and really gathered a lot of feedback from people about their fears, their their hopes for future and was really helpful to also guide us with the strategy how to take those stories forward and how to build on them the, the campaign in future. And you really work to understand those communities and understand those people and understand where they're coming from in order to do that. But in order to take action, sometimes that they have to see options. Growing up in Western Pennsylvania and rural Pennsylvania, people didn't often see what the options were outside of coal mining in some cases. What sort of new sectors of work are the, uh, the miners of Silesia now moving into? And how did you encourage them to... It's still a process because what we identified is that uh, miners already have a set of very important skills. They're miners, but at the same time, they have so many different skills in hand. They just often don't have papers to prove that they're experts in the field. In my opinion, another discussion and another way how the the campaign could evolve and engage new uh, partners is to think about upskilling and, and having certificates in the hands of minors because we see a huge potential in, for example, renewable energy sector like things like even in installing solar panels or retrofitting houses. These are the, the industries and sectors that really need people to work on and focus on if we need if we want to think about net zero, beyond net zero and really having change. We need to also think how to remove coal from in-house heating and that's a massive problem that uh, that we work on as well. This is why the whole retrofitting industry already need many people, but we need even more. So that's one part. The other part is that we need experts, specialists, innovations. It's already a home of many different innovative companies that try they and, and do the best they, they can to, to really make impact. So I think it's a way of how to change economy and how to create those workspaces for people and how to match the skills that are already there and how to fill the gap of skills that are missing and are needed and how to upskill the people to make sure they can get the job they, they need. The work that PCL is doing in Poland is so vital to the community. Over these two episodes, we've heard lots about the solutions to climate change, about new technologies, and human processes which attempt to reach net zero. But are they going to work? Will they bring emissions down in time? 
I asked Daniel his thoughts. What do you think the likelihood of the world reaching net zero targets by 2050 is? And what is the likelihood of going beyond it? I think the path is narrow and the path is narrowing all the time, but I'm optimistic and very hopeful that I'm sure that we can do it. Too. I think it's really interesting to think about what the future could look like. Like, what, what are, where are we heading for? And I think it's really hard to say. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, this cartoon that I really like. It's from 2009. It was a pretty challenging year for climate climate diplomacy. But it shows this conference presenter listing lots of advantages of curbing climate change. Energy independence, preserving sustainability, green jobs, livable cities, renewables, clean water, clean air, healthy children, etc, etc. And then someone stands up at the back, it's this cartoon, this person stands up at the back saying, what if it's all a hoax and we create a better world for nothing? And I think it's a funny way to make a really serious point because I think we all want those things. We want energy independence, we want to preserve rainforests, etc, etc. And if it, that's the future we get, if we get this right, then I think it's the, it's a fight that I... It, it's interesting though, because I think it won't be a wholesale transformation of society. I've said the jobs haven't been invented yet. And that's true, but you think 30 years ago, no one knew what you know, a cryptocurrency trader was, but they still live the same lives that the rest of us do. Society hasn't hugely transformed in that time. There's a guy, James O'Malley, recently talked a little bit about this. He made a great point and he was like, the fundamental problem, he said, with any approach to climate that fundamentally involves rewiring society is that we're already too close to the deadline. Our guests over these two episodes have been fundamentally positive and optimistic about a sustainable future. So I wanted to give them a final word as we draw to a close to see what they think we can all do in this fight. Here's Alison Dring from episode one. So I think what we can do as individuals is demand that systems consider the climate. And we can do that by making the choices that we make. So the being consumers that understand what impact that company is making on the climate, good or bad, and make decisions that way. That's something we can do. We can make better choices. And Kiri Trier? I would love to take the chance to remind the people that we really need to act now and that everybody can make a mark on their individual base starting with reducing the waste, starting with buying things that are really neutral. There's so many initiatives, there are so many actions out there, but also not just claiming targets and numbers because mm -hmm. of profit growth and really focusing on the execution. And Natalia Vengen? in order to have a brighter future. I think we really need to take into account different voices and listen to people that we not necessarily agree with and just to try to find some common ground for the action. And, and I would say that we need everyone on board and whether you're individual or uh, you have your own company or your work in a government or local government, I think that's the time for all of us to really think about it and do our best. And I hope that will be a real, that could make a real change. But beyond the human factors, there's things companies can do as well. 
Here's Florent Andrion. We've just started a very exciting journey of transformation. It's, it's a human challenge, but I'm uh, very excited because there is a lot of opportunity to reinvent the world. And in any industry, we need to reinvent everything. We need to reinvent the way we we move, we consume energy, we produce products. So everything needs to be reinvented. And that's what we like here at Capgemini, to reinvent the world and the, and the products. I'm Carol Pecknold. That's what gets me out of bed every day, is how can I make this easier for people to achieve? And how can my role in this large ecosystem enable that? Uh, and not make it an us versus them, a me versus you, but make it something where we all want to have good food on our table. We all want to have a safe home to live in. And finding the places of commonality rather than the places of difference. Finally, Daniel Hale. Right at the beginning of this conversation, which I've enjoyed enormously, Liz, um, everyone has a part to play. I've got one, you've got one, everyone listening to the, this podcast has one. Um, so yeah, don't leave it till tomorrow, do something today, get excited about it. If you need a helping hand, reach out to some people that come call me. And yeah, I think between us, we can definitely reach net zero, um, but it's gonna take everybody. And yeah, we've got no time to lose. Thanks to all today's guests, Daniel, Natalia, and Kara, plus our guests from episode one, Floral, Kiri, and Allison. You can find out more about all of their work in the show notes. Future Sight, Beyond Net Zero, was hosted by me, Liz Lunier. It was written by Harry Stott with contributions from Emily Lopez and produced by Teresa Ignatius and Ollie Judge. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. We'll see you soon.